Hello and welcome to Critical Observations in Pulmonary Medicine, led by Chief Medical Officer of the American Lung Association, Dr. Albert Rizzo. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or Consultant 360. Today we have with us infectious disease and critical care specialist, Dr. Hari Regonath, to discuss community-acquired pneumonia. Dr. Regonath is currently an attending physician at the University of Maryland, Baltimore Washington Medical Center in Glen Burnie, Maryland. He also holds an appointment as an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Medicine, Divisions of Pulmonary, Critical Care Medicine, and Infectious Disease at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. So I believe the most recent guidelines put out by the American Thoracic Society and the Infectious Disease Society of America were in 2019. At that time, they updated several recommendations from the 2007 guidelines. And I hope we can highlight some of those changes during our discussion today. Community-acquired pneumonia has been defined as an acute infection of the pulmonary parenchyma in a patient who has acquired the infection in the community as distinguished from hospital-acquired or nosocomial pneumonia. One of the terms that was dropped as a result of the guideline update is the healthcare-associated pneumonia, or HCAP. Can you comment on why this term was dropped? Yes, thanks for this question. HCAP was originally introduced in 2005 HAPVAP guidelines, and it was a presumption to encompass patients who were thought to be at high risk for multidrug-resistant organisms mainly via their contact with the healthcare system, because that's where we commonly encountered multidrug-resistant organisms. But over the subsequent decade, data has now shown that many who are labeled HCAP were actually not at high risk for multidrug-resistant pathogens. In other words, the studies revealed no association between the definition that made HCAP as a whole, or any of its components to the presence of or the isolation of multidrug-resistant organisms. So most patients who were labeled as HCAP were also from the community harboring similar pathogens from those who have community-acquired pneumonia. So these were the considerations that they take, took into account in, and decided they voted for dropping the term HCAP. Right. Well, that flows right into my, my next question, which is, what is the current thinking regarding the primary etiologies of community-acquired pneumonia that the treating physician should keep in mind? Yes. Well, community-acquired pneumonia, I think it has stood the test of time, the most common pathogens. Well, before I say that, I want to to regroup the pathogens as bacterial pathogens and viral pathogens. Bacterial agents are by far still the most common. Now, uh, the viral pathogens have been recently recognized, especially since the advent of molecular diagnostics. So I would say is pneumococci is still the number one cause worldwide for community-acquired pneumonia. And in the United States, following pneumococci, it's uh, gram-negatives like haemophilus influenza, staph aureus, with a little bit of overlap with the healthcare-associated uh, associated settings. And But I also want to want to clarify that the, the, you know, that while the CAP guidelines did say drop you know, the reason for dropping the healthcare-associated pneumonia was related to pathogens being similar. For those who qualified for those definitions, the healthcare-associated pneumonia guidelines do acknowledge the fact that healthcare contact is, in fact, a potential risk factor for MDR pathogens. 
but they wanted to highlight that individual patient characteristics were better determinants of multidrug resistant pathogens. So cycling back to the current etiologies, I think 2014-15 data from the CDC does say that viral etiologies, among the viral etiologies, it used to be influenza in the winter season, rhinovirus throughout the year, and metanumovirus. They were the most commonly seen cases in adults. But now with the advent of the pandemic, there's a little bit of a change in the epidemiology right. depending on how right. we are we expose ourselves to and what risk factors. And I think you almost uh, predicted my next question here. I'm saying, are there patient characteristics or comorbidities that make certain pathogens more likely to be suspected at the time of presentation? Yes, there are individual risk factors which have been identified to aid suspicion for specific pathogens. And the examples include structural lung disease. For example, we often see pseudomonas Burkholderia or Staph aureus, including MRSA, in patients who have alcohol dependence or alcohol use, we could see Klebsiella, oral anaerobes, including Acinetobacter and pneumococci. And patients with HIV depends on whether they are early or late in the HIV disease, whether they are controlled or not. You can see the typical pathogens or opportunistic infections like PCP, crypto, or histoplasma. And not to forget. Uh, the population where we can predict or suspect penicillin resistance, which includes elderly more than 65 years, and those who have been exposed to beta lactams within the past 90 days, and those who have children in daycare settings. Mm. And similarly, I can go on. This is an exhaustive list right. uh, where many factors can help us identify uh, or suspect specific pathogens. So it really points out the importance of the history, especially the recent history as to where that patient's been, what they've been doing, along with their comorbidities and characteristics, uh, right? Absolutely. And if clinical teaching goes saying that if we miss something, the answer always lies in history and physical <laughs> Very good point. Um, when confronted with a community-acquired pneumonia in the clinical setting, let's say whether it's in a physician's office or the emergency room, Determining whether a patient should be safely treated as an outpatient or requires admission, at least to observation or general medicine, or maybe a higher acuity, is certainly an important first step. And I know there have been prediction tools uh, developed to help a clinician decide the need for hospitalization. I'm referring to uh, specifically the PSI or pneumonia severity index uh, and the CURB-65. Can you describe them a bit and comment on their utility and your preference if there is one? as to what tools should be used in certain settings? Yes, and this is a very important question um, for the learning providers particularly. Um, I wanna emphasize a few important things when it comes to uh, these tools. Um, it is a conditional recommendation that is being given regarding the PSI um, or the CURB-65. Uh, now, it's also important to remember that they are never a standalone tool. They are always used as an adjunct or a supplement to clinical judgment. So there is no replacement of clinical judgment. Um, but well, then why do the guidelines uh, stress these tools? Because clinical judgment can be quite variable across the healthcare settings regarding admission rates, costs, and risk for nosocomial complications. So that's why they emphasize the prediction tools as a guide. Uh, PSI 
has a better discriminative power because it, it has a lot more variables than the CURB-65. In other words, uh, CURB-65 is a shorter version, taking into account the most impactful factors and PSI is a more elaborate version. So obviously it has a better discriminative power. It takes into account sex, age, comorbidities, exam lab findings, and radiological findings, as opposed to CURB-65, where we have only four or five variables. So uh, many clinicians, I believe, prefer to use CURB-65 because it's quick and easy, as opposed to PSI. But the new guidelines in their data, it is very clear that they, they prefer PSI compared to CURB-65. And to be honest, um, I do not think in terms of which score, but rather what components of them convince me to decide whether a patient needs to be admitted or not. Right. This is because clinical observation at one time point does not always provide an accurate estimate of the disease course. Good point. And, yeah. and, and one last thing I want to emphasize is it's really important to understand that this is to determine the need for hospitalization and not designed to select the level of care for an already hospitalized patient. So at the time time point of admission is where these, these should typically be applied and not after. Right. So let's discuss some of the diagnostic tests after the history has been obtained uh, that really should be part of that evaluation of community-acquired pneumonia. Uh, for example, what is, what is the role mm -hmm. and the timing of obtaining sputum and blood cultures, would you say? Um, the diagnostic tests, uh, usual diagnostic tests help in assessing severity uh, can be done like CBC, BMP. Um, the, uh, the comments about sputum and blood cultures, generally cultures from any tissue or body fluids have the highest yield when we obtain them prior to antibiotic therapy. So having said that, we should consider the fact that most patients with non-severe community-acquired pneumonia are unable to provide a sputum sample that's considered microbiologically adequate. Hence, they have a poor yield and it's not recommended as a test for outpatients. But in critically ill patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia who need mechanical ventilation, there is easy access to the lower respiratory tract. So there is no excuse to not obtain a tracheal aspirate as soon as possible. Now, we have to keep in mind that in the effort to obtain a sample, we should not delay antibiotic therapy. The first dose needs to get in as soon as possible, and you get the culture samples as soon as you can. You make every attempt to gather the sample before the antibiotic administration so that you improve the yield and subsequently de-escalate antibiotics. Right. And I know you've also uh, written about the importance of the turnaround time for antibiotic susceptibility testing, or AST. Uh, can you comment further on that? Yes. Uh, well, uh, the turnaround time has to be used in two different contexts when it comes to community-acquired pneumonia, uh, blood cultures and sputum cultures. Blood cultures turnaround time is pretty fast nowadays with the uh, automated systems. The sputum cultures take their own sweet time because they are still the traditional way. So while blood cultures are recommended on all patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia, they have a very low yield uh, in outpatients. Blood cultures are also recommended for those who are being treated for MRSA or pseudomonas uh, as a presumption. Um, so if our blood cultures, the turnaround time typically, um, uh, my answer is probably going to be a little long-winded here. Uh, all right. From the time of collection, uh, it takes about 
somewhere between two to five days for it to turn positive. Their normal blood cultures are kept up to five days. So let's say it turns positive on day two, um, then it takes another 48 to 72 hours for it to be grown in uh, cultures and until we get the final susceptibility results. So it could take up to five days for us to narrow the antibiotic spectrum. So in blood cultures, this process has been intercepted by a PCR that comes soon after the bottles turn positive before you plate it. At that step, when you do the PCR, it spits out a host of pathogens, common gram positives, gram negatives, candida, and markers of genetic resistance. So in 48 hours, when the microbiologist calls you saying that, I have a gram-positive pathogen. Within the next couple of hours, he does a PCR and gets, spits out a pathogen. At least he'll say if it's not included in one of the common things, such as the MRSA or pseudomonas. So that'll help you to quickly de-escalate. For sputum cultures, it's a whole different ballgame because the sputum cultures, they follow the traditional path. We don't have a PCR to intercept the culture process, but we do have what's called a non-culture-based diagnostic test, which is a pneumonia panel or PCR done directly in the sputum sample. That I am of a mixed opinion about it. They are upcoming as quick tests with a quick turnaround time. You'll get the results immediately if your lab does it in the same institution. But the problem is you detect a host of pathogens, which might be a colonizer and you cannot differentiate between a pathogenic versus a non-pathogenic agent. The most useful um, for such um, non-culture-based technique is the MRSA-PCR, which has a good negative predictive value that helps you to de-escalate when it is negative. Very good. Yeah, that uh, I was going to ask more about PCR, but you covered that very well. And we heard a lot about PCR now as part of the evaluation, certainly to rule out COVID with the different right. viruses and now we're looking at influenza, RSV. I guess there are multiplex PCRs that will help in the initial setting to define a, a pathogen. Is that correct? That is correct. We do, in fact, in our institution, use the multiplex PCR, but then they, they come in a different variety of combinations. One that is combined with the regular respiratory pathogens panel, and then that which is that which has SARS-CoV-2 with it. And then there is a a smaller version of it, which just has influenza, RSV, and SARS-CoV-2, all the three. And there's another one that also includes C. diff with it. So I don't know why they come C. diff. But... So a lot of pick and choose from, yep, depending on your institution. Right. Um, as part of the initial evaluation, uh, chest x-rays seem necessary. And can you comment on when you might uh, consider going to a CT scan of the chest and and also a comment on what, what the routine follow-up of a chest X-ray might be after someone's been treated for pneumonia. Absolutely. Um, the chest X-ray is an important part of diagnosis that is not, uh, that's without question. CT chest, on the other hand, is generally considered, um, if there is a need to improve radiologic characterization or for you to understand the uh, what else is going on in regards to complications or host factors such as immunocompromised hosts. Or in patients who have recurrent pneumonia, then you may want to investigate why they are developing recurrent pneumonia to have a better understanding of the pulmonary parenchyma. And uh, certain pathogens have typical appearances in CAT scans, cavitary lesions for mycobacterium tuberculosis, um, the halocyne for aspergillus in solid organ transplant patients. 
and to further evaluate pleural effusions, um, whether they are simple or complicated. And, and if patients don't follow the clinical course, as you may expect, you probably want to have a CAT scan of the chest to evaluate and see uh, what else it may offer you in regards to clues towards diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Now, follow-up imaging is generally not recommended for patients who are following the clinical course as expected, and they start recovering uh, within five to seven days of treatment. But those who had a staggering response, who had atypical features, um, then those patients, they may require follow-up imaging. The current guidelines did evaluate about the role of follow-up imaging and what they found in the studies that looked at follow-up imaging uh, your chance of really identifying the most worrisome diagnosis, which is a malignancy or an underlying cancer, uh, was the yield was very low. And in those patients where they identified that the follow-up imaging studies did identify lung cancer, already were qualifying for uh, the lung cancer screening recommended, right. already recommended, right, by, uh, you can name the uh, um, the, the association or right. the group that's recommending it, be it right. ETS or IDSA or, um, or um, uh, the primary, um, I'm sorry, I'm missing out on the name. Well, the USPSTF. USPSTF, yes, thank you for that. It's a mouthful. <laughs> right. I've practiced it a number of times. <laughs> right, or the USPSTF. Yeah. So depending on that, they all qualified for that. So right. right now, there is not. it's not routinely recommended to have follow-up imaging. Okay, thank you. So if we begin to talk about antibiotic regimens for treating community-acquired pneumonia, is it still a useful framework to look at the site of treatment, outpatient versus inpatient, as well as immunocompromised versus non-immunocompromised? Does that help start delineating the regimen? Probably, yes, I would say, because the guidelines are still using these in the context of treatment choices available in the United States. The choices for outpatient versus inpatient could vary based on the setting or other factors, of course. Uh, But when compared to the previous guidelines, the 2019 guidelines do emphasize uh, the recognition of severe community-acquired pneumonia um, based off of the 2007 IDSA ATS uh, criteria. Uh, because they had a, I, I believe the pooled meta-analysis, uh, the, the meta-analysis pooled sensitivity was around 84% uh, and specificity was around 78% for inpatients. And uh, they recommend ICU admission for those in refractory shock or needing mechanical ventilations. So similarly, conditions or medications that cause immunocompromise and the duration and level of immunosuppression are important factors that could guide us in our empiric choices in regards to certain pathogens, um, autoimmune disease versus solid organ transplant versus bone marrow transplant patients, or um, what degree of immunosub does, or HIV, for example, does give a guide to what pathogens should be considered for empiric choices. So I do believe there is a role for it. Okay, thank you. Antibiotic stewardship is an important aspect, uh, the appropriate use of antibiotics to avoid side effects, but also to avoid the promotion of resistance. Uh, what are some best practices regarding duration of antibiotic therapy in community-acquired pneumonia? So minimum of five days of antibiotic therapy is essential, provided there is clinical recovery within a 72-hour period from commencement of antibiotics. It can be prolonged if recovery is staggering or if you have MRSA or pseudomonas. 
then you could go up to seven days or eight days. Um, similarly, the complications such as empyema, lung abscess, or if they had a complicating bacteremia, endocarditis, or metastatic focus of infection, they may require longer duration of therapy depending on the clinical settings. Great. So um, I would like to, um, in this setting, I think um, I also wanted to, because you brought in the the uh, you brought an antibiotic stewardship. I want to just mm -hmm. mention that for severe community acquired pneumonia, when we start broad spectrum therapy, I think there is enough opportunity within the first 48 to 72 hours if they are clinically improving when cultures are negative. And if cultures weren't obtained using PCR or absence of risk factors in combination with the MRSA PCR, we can probably de escalate therapy. So those are some other opportunities that we should also think about when it comes to stewardship. Right, right. Especially in view of the fact that the promoting resistance is a concern. And in that regard, uh, do you see any significant changes coming up on the horizon with regarding new, newer therapies, newer antibiotics uh, because of some of the resistance that's developing? Yes, more and more antibiotics have become, I mean, for example, if you take ceftaroline as a fifth generation cephalosporin and uh, it works still on drug resistance gram positives, which are otherwise, uh, which may harbor a beta-lactamase or an AMP-C resistance. So they are, it still works for MRSA, it still works for MSSA, the drug resistance strep, gram negatives, and pseudomonas. Um, there are upcoming antibiotics that the guidelines do talk about a few of them, but there are others that are available outside the United States as well. Uh, the guidelines particularly talk about maracycline, which is a tetracycline derivative compared to moxifloxacin, um, but it's only studied in inpatients and not on outpatients. And there are recent uh, papers and uh, meta-analysis and systematic reviews in clinical infectious disease that talk about doxycycline still having activity mm -hmm. against pneumococci. So uh, justifying their role, um, and one of the commentaries does talk about how the author voted against it in the CAP guidelines, but he wrote a commentary saying that doxycycline still holds good because of the uh, pooled analysis. Another antibiotic that is a first of its kind is lefamulin, which is a fluoromutilin antibiotic, and it inhibits bacterial protein synthesis in simple terms. It's active against gram-positives, gram-negatives. Most of the comparisons are to moxifloxacin, which is an oral agent, and they have non-inferior results. And they did include comorbidities as a part of that study. So they're looking at lefamulin as a potential alternative to fluoroquinolones because it causes less QT prolongation and things like that. So um, th there might be a change within the next, it took about um, 10 plus years for a new guideline to pop up. So I am pretty sure there might be changes in the next <laughs> the other guy. few years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, switching gears a little bit, um, an important role for healthcare providers to try to prevent disease when possible. And certainly pneumococcal pneumonia and influenza related pneumonia are important. And we have vaccines that can play a role in this. Uh, can you review the current recommendations from the ACIP regarding the pneumococcal vaccines, as well as the influenza vaccines that will likely be available this season? Sure. The 2021 ACIP iterations um, did introduce the PCV, PCV20, uh, which is a conjugate vaccine, or a PCV15, uh, which had two more strains, um, more than the PCV13, prior PCV13. 
Um, but the PCV15, if we give, should be followed by the PSV23 in series. Uh, those were the two options, either PCV20 alone or PCV15 followed by PPSV23 after a year from PCV15. Now, uh, they tried to simplify uh, their recommendations as much as possible, but they, they have simplified, but it is still quite complex when you try to interpret it because we have a host of patients who has already received one or the other right. and in such different age groups, with different risk factors. So I think broadly, um, for those who have already, so let me start with this. We had PCV13 and PP, uh, PSV23 in the past, and now we have two more new vaccines. So how do we provide guidelines for all of them? Right. So to simplify it, I would say if for those who have already received the PCV13, they say simply say follow the previous recommendations with PSV23 following the PCV13. Okay. For those who only had the pneumococcal 23 valent vaccine in the past, the old one, the PSV23, they may receive either PCV20 alone or a PCV15 followed by another PSV23 after a year. Now we had to make sure that the first dose was based more than a year from the series or the PCV20. For if you have not received any vaccine, you could just do PCV20 alone or PCV15 followed by 23. For immunocompromised patients, this duration that is facing the other pneumococcal vaccines and the PSV23, which is typically one year or more, can be shortened two months um, or more within more than or equal to eight weeks is what they say. Um, so this is the most simplified version I can give you. And, and I then, think uh, the fact you said it's complex is an understatement, but I appreciate you trying to sort it out for us. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and, and the, the list of conditions that come under the comorbid conditions that qualify them to get vaccine within from 19 to 64 years is a whole host of things, right. um, um, chronic liver disease, chronic lung disease, heart disease, HIV, asplenia, CSF leak, cochlear implant, right. and keeps going on, including hemoglobinopathies. Right. Yeah. And switching gears to influenza, what do you think this year is going to be like, and what are you recommending to your patients? Well, the mask mandates have been fluctuating now, and the adherence uh, by the public or to mask requirements are quite variable. So it will not be surprising to see influenza cases. It was very clear during the COVID-19 pandemic with the mask mandates, we had almost no influenza activity as opposed to this year, we probably will see some. Uh, we did see surges in flu B cases last year, um, much later when the mask mandates were relaxed in the influenza season. So it's important that we follow through the nationally recommended annual vaccination for influenza um, in all adults who do not have contraindications. And when it is available, get it prior to the onset of influenza activity in the community. There are intramuscular, intramuscular killed inactivated quadvalent vaccines, which can be egg-based or cell culture-based, and you have the recombinant vaccine and also a live vaccine. For particularly for adults more than 65 years who are most vulnerable, 
a higher dose in activated vaccine is recommended as a single shot. Otherwise, for other adults, any inactivated vaccine can be used as an intramuscular uh, form. And I guess as a last question, do you have any inside information on when the next COVID booster might be available? <laughs> well, there are stocks among the uh, infectious disease, critical care, and pulmonary groups that are more than likely we may have to get two, two doses. Oh, if you had natural, I mean, one for... Um, if hopefully there'll be a formulation that could uh, cover the Delta Omicron as well as the BA5 or the BA2. Okay. So it's going to be more than likely COVID-19 is going to be causing blips instead of a widespread pandemic in the future because herd immunity has picked up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So SARS-CoV viruses, um, I think the main wave has gone away and now we are we will probably see just the blips, particularly pertaining to host factors which will lose immunity in the long run related to their own host um, uh, factors. I would say their immune phenotype or whatever undiscovered reasons that mm -hmm. might lead to discoveries. So I, I cannot say anything for sure, okay. but I would say uh, a fourth booster is definitely in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, if you had natural infection, you might forgo it, but again, it lasts up to six months, which more and more studies have shown that. But after how many infections or after how many boosters are you considered immune for life? I don't think that's never that's ever achievable because mm -hmm. of the reassortment and the antigenic shift and drift that we see like in influenza viruses. So mutations keep happening and new. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you're, you're going to see new versions of SARS-CoV-2. Well, this has been a very comprehensive discussion for our listeners. Any any other points you wanted to make? I thank you for uh, the topic you have covered very uh, completely. Well, I, I think we covered most of it. I would like to emphasize that there is always a great opportunity to de-escalate antibiotics in being an infectious disease and critical care physician myself. So I always have a huge emphasis on that. So there's always scope for it great. in hospitalized patients. Great, great message. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Reza. For more pulmonary and critical care content, visit our website, consultant360.com.